My Favorite Theorem, a podcast about theorems where we ask mathematicians to tell us about theorems. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. It seems like I just saw you yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but I looked a little different yesterday. You did. In between you did. when I... Uh, talked with you and this morning I uh, dyed my hair a new color so I'm trying out bright Crayola crayon yellow right now it looks so, good um, looks good yeah it's it's been fun uh, in this I don't know like 18 hours I've had it so far well you know when it's when it's sort of dreary winter right you feel the need to, to do something uh, to, to snap you out yeah. of although it's sunny in Salt Lake right it's just cold no big deal some sun. We've had a, a lot of snow recently, as our guest knows, because our our guest today also lives in Salt Lake City. Um, so I'm very happy to introduce Suresh Venkata Subramanian. So hi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, thanks for having me. And first of all, I should say, if it weren't for um, your podcast, my dishes would never get done. <laughs> I, I, I put the podcast on, I start doing the dishes and life is good. So we, we, we're glad we to be the place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so um, I'm a, I, I'm in the computer science department here. Um, I, I have many names. It depends on who's asking and when. Sometimes I'm a computational geometer. Uh, I'm a data miner. Sometimes occasionally a machine learner, though people raise their eyebrows at that. But the name I like the most right now is bias detective mm. and uh, or computational philosopher. These are the two names that I like nice. the most right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because you've been doing a lot of work on um, algorithmic bias. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, so one of the things that we're um, dealing with now as machine learning and associated sort of tools go out into the world is that they're being used for not just, you know, predicting what podcasts you should listen to or what mm -hmm. music you should listen to, but they're also being used to decide whether you get a job somewhere, whether you, whether you get admission to college, uh, whether you get uh, surveilled by the police, uh, what kind of sentences you might get, um, and whether you get a loan. All these things are, are where machine learning is now being used just because we have lots of data to collect and, and seemingly make better decisions. But along with that comes a lot of challenges because what we're finding is that a lot of the human bias in the way we make decisions is being transferred to machine bias. And that causes all kinds of problems, both because of the speed at which these decisions get made and the and the relative obscurity of uh, automated decision making. So trying to piece together, piece out what's going on, how this changes the way we think about the world, how we how the way we think about knowledge about society is sort of uh, been taking up most of my time of late. <laughs> yeah, and you've uh, you've got some interesting papers that you've worked on, right, on how people who design algorithms can help you know, combat some of these biases that can creep in. Yeah, I mean, and so there, there are many, many levels of questions, right? One basic question is, can you, how do you even detect whether there's, so first of all, I mean, and I think for a, you know, as a mathematical question, how do you even define what it means for something to be biased? What does that even, what does that word even mean? These are all loaded terms. And, you know, once you come up with a bunch of different definitions for maybe what is a relatively similar concept, how do they interact? How do you build systems that can sort of avoid these kinds of bias the way you've defined it? And um, and what are the consequences of building systems? What kind of feedback loops do you have in systems that are that you use? There's a whole host of questions from the mathematical to the social to the philosophical. So it's very exciting, but it also means every day I feel even more dumb than I started the day with. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, so I think the real challenge here is that um, you know people who aren't particularly mathematically inclined just assume that because a computer, you know, spit out an answer, it must be valid. It must be correct. Um, and, and that in some sense, you know, it's cold. The machine made this decision and therefore it must be right. Uh, how do you think we can overcome that, that idea that, you know, actually bias can be built into algorithms? So this is the math is not racist argument, basically, that yeah, comes right, up right. time and time again, right? And yeah, I, 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 one thing that I think is encouraging is that we've moved relatively quickly in the span of, say, three to four years from math is not racist. Well, well duh, of course, algorithms have bias. You know, right. What do you mean? They, yeah. you know. So I, I guess that's a good thing. But, but, but I think the problem is that a lot of commercial, there's a lot of commercial and other incentives bound up with the idea that automated systems are more objective. Mm -hmm. And like most things, there is a kernel of truth to it in the sense that you can avoid certain kinds of obvious biases by automating decision making. But then the problem is you can introduce others and you can also amplify others. So it's it's tricky, I think. You're right. It's um, getting away from that notion where it's commercially, you know, uh, more there's more incentive to argue that way. But also saying, look, it's not all bad, but there's you just need more nuance, you know. Arguments for more nuance tend not to go as well as, you know, no. well, here's exactly how it works, you know, so it's hard. Everything's black or white. We know this, right? <laughs> With a 50% probability, everything is either true or not, right? So that's right. <laughs> yeah. So we invited you on to hear about your favorite theorem. Um, and what is that? So it's it's technically an inequality, but I, I I know that in the past you've allowed this sort of deviation from the rules. So I'm going to propose yes. it anyway. Yes. Yeah, we are we are very flexible. Okay, good, good, good. So so the inequality is called Fano's inequality uh, after Robert Fano, and it comes from information theory, and it's it's a it's it's one of those things where you know the more I talk about it, the more sort of excited I get about it. I'm not even. You know, I'm not even close to being an expert on the ins and outs of this inequality, but I just love it so much. So I, I need to tell you about that. So, so like all good stories, right? This starts with pigeons. Everything starts with pigeons. So yes. So um, you've you may have heard of the pigeonhole principle. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the pigeonhole principle for the, those in the audience who may not, you know, basically if you have ten pigeons and you have nine pigeonholes, someone's going to get a roommate, right? You you can't have this thing. So it's a, it's one of the most obvious you know, statements one can make, but, uh, and also the one of the more powerful ones, because if you unpack it a little bit, it's not telling you where to find that pigeonhole with two pigeons. It's merely saying that, that, that you, you are guaranteed that this thing must exist, right? It's a sort of an existence proof that can be stated very simply. But the pigeonhole principle, uh, which is used in many, many parts of uh, computer science to prove that, you know, some things are impossible or not, is also can be restated, can be used to prove another thing. So we all know that if, you know, if, okay, I need to store an, uh, a set of numbers and if a, num if a numbers range from one to n, then I need something like log n bits to store it. Well, why do I need log n bits? One way to think about this is this is the pigeonhole principle in action because you're saying I have n things. If I have log n bits to describe a hole, like an address, then there are two to the log n different holes, which is n. And if I don't have log n bits, then I don't have n holes, and thereby original principle, two of my things will get the same name, and that's not a good thing. I want to be able to name everything differently. Okay. So immediately you get this simple statement saying if you want to store n things, you need log n bits. And of course, you know, n could be whatever you want it to be, which means that now 
in, in theoretical computer science, when you want to prove lower bounds, you want to say that something is not possible or some algorithm must take a certain amount of time or you must need to store so many bits of information to do something. These are typically very hard things to prove because you have to reason about any possible imaginary way of storing something or doing something, and that's very hard. But with things like the pigeonhole principle and this login bit idea, you, you can do surprisingly many things by saying, look, I have to store these many things. I'm going to need at least log of that many bits, no matter what you do. And that's great. So that's the inequality. No, not no. yet. Okay, all right. I was, I was yeah. stopping, but I thought Evelyn okay. was going to say something. I, I'm building up. It's, it's like a, it's like you know, a suspense story here. Okay, good. Yes. So the, chapter the, two. So, so the, 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 if you now unpack this login bit thing, what it's really saying is that I can encode elements and numbers in such a way using a certain number of bits, so that I can decode them perfectly. Because there aren't two pigeons living in the same pigeonhole, there is no ambiguity. Once I have a pigeonhole, who lives there? It's very clear, right? It's a perfect decoding. So now you've gone from just talking about storage, talking about an encoding process and a decoding process. And this is where Fano's inequality starts getting very coming into play. So information theory, so going back to Shannon, right, is this whole idea of how, how you transmit information, how you transmit information efficiently. So the, the typical object of study in information theory is a channel. So you have some input, some set of bits going into a channel, something happens to it in the channel, maybe some noise, maybe something else, and then something comes out. And one of the things you'd like to do is looking at, so X comes in, Y comes out, and given Y, you'd like to decode and get back to X, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that, you know, you can talk about the ideas of mutual information entropy start coming out very naturally, where you start saying if x is stochastic, it's a random variable and y is random, then the, the channel capacity, in some sense, the amount of information the channel can send through relates to what is called the mutual information between x and y, which is this quantity that captures, roughly speaking, if I, if I know something about x, what can I say about y and vice versa? This is not quite accurate, but this is more or less what it says. So information theory at a broader level, and this is where it really Fano's inequality connects to so many things, is really about how to quantify the information content that one thing has about another thing, right? Um, through a channel that might do something mysterious to your, to, your, to your variable as it goes through. So now what does Fano's inequality say? So Fano's inequality you can think of now in the context of bits and decoding and encoding says something like this, that the if you try, if you have a channel, you take X, you push it in through the channel and out comes Y, and now you try to reconstruct what X was, right? And let's say there's some error in the process. The error in the process of reconstructing X from Y relates to the uh, term that is a function of the mutual information between X and Y. Um, more precisely, if you look at how much essentially entropy you have left in X once I tell you why. So for example, um, so I tell you, let me see if there's a good example for this. Um, so I give you someone's name, let's say it's a Western uh, American Caucasian name, with a certain degree of probability you'll be able to predict what their gender is. You won't always get it right, but there'll be some prediction probability of doing this, right? Mm -hmm. The degree to which, you know, so that's, so the, you can think of this as saying, okay, there's a certain error in predicting that person's name from the, for, for predicting the person's gender from the name as you went through the channel, okay? The, the reason why you have an error is because there's a certain amount of noise. Some names are uh, sort of gender ambiguous and it's not obvious how to tell. 
And so there's a certain amount of entropy left in the, in, the, in the system, even after I've told you the name of the person. There's still a amount of uncertainty. And so your error in predicting that person's gender from their name is related to the amount of entropy left in the system. And this is sort of intuitively reasonable. But what it's doing is connecting two things that you wouldn't normally expect to be connected. It's connecting a computational metaphor, this process of decoding, right, and the error in decoding along with a basic information theoretic statement about the relationship between two variables. And because of that, Fano's inequality and even the basic log n, you know, log n bits needed to store n things idea, permeates pretty much all of computer science. Because if we want to prove a lower bound on how we compute something, at the very least we can say, look, I need at least this much information to do this computation. That I might need other stuff, but I need at least this much information. That clearly will be a lower bound. Can I prove a lower bound? And that is, has been a surprisingly successful endeavor in reasoning about the lower bounds for computations where it would be otherwise very hard to you know, think about, okay, what does this computation do or what does that computation do? Can I, have I imagined every possible algorithm I can design? I don't care about any of that because Fano's inequality says it doesn't matter. Just analyze the amount of information content you have in your system. That's going to give you a lower bound on the amount of error you're going to see. Okay, so I was reading, you wrote a lovely post about this, um, and I was reading that uh, this morning before we started talking, and um, I, I think this is what you just said, but it's one of these things that it's it's very new to me. I'm not used to thinking like a computer scientist or uh, information theorist or anything. Um, so it, something that was a, a little bit, I, I was having trouble understanding um, is whether uh, this inequality, how much it depends on the particular relationship you have between the, the two, the X and Y that you're looking at? So one way to answer this question is to say that all you need to know is the, is the conditional entropy of uh, the X given Y. That's it. You don't need to know anything else about how Y was produced from X. All, all that you need to know to put a bound on the decoding error is the amount of entropy that's left in the system. Is that effectively computable? I mean, is that easy to compute? Um, uh, it, for the cases where you apply Fano's inequality, yes. I mean, typically it is, uh, in fact, you will often construct examples where you can show what the conditional entropy is and therefore be able to reason, uh, directly use Fano's inequality to argue for the probability of error. So let me give an example in computer science of how this works. Okay, great. Yeah, right? great. So, so suppose I want to build, uh, so one of the things we have to do sometimes is build a data structure for a problem, which means you're trying to solve some problem. You want to store information in a convenient way so you can access the information uh, quickly. So you want to build some lookup table or a dictionary so that when someone comes up with a question, hey, is this, you know, is this person's name in the dictionary? You can quickly give an answer to that question. Okay. So now I want to say, look, I have to process these queries. I want to know how much information I need to store in my data structure so that I can answer queries very, very quickly. Okay. So now you have to, and so you have to figure out, uh, and so one thing you'd like to do is say, okay, I built this awesome data structure, but is it the best possible? I don't know. Let me see if I can prove a lower bond on how much information I need to store. So the way you would use Fano's inequality to prove that um, you need a certain amount of information would be to say something like this. You would say, I'm going to design a procedure. I'm going to prove to you that this procedure correctly reconstructs the answer for any query a user might give me. So there's a query 
to, let's say, to the district saying, is there an element in the database? And I have, I have my algorithm, I will prove correctly returns this with some unknown number of bits stored. And given that it correctly returns this answer up to some error probability, I will use Fano's inequality say, because of that fact, it must be the case that there is a large amount of mutual information between the original data and the data structure you stored, which is the essentially the thing that you've converted the data from through your channel. And so this, the, if the mutual information is large, the amount of bits you need to store this must also be large. And therefore, with small error, you must pay at least these many bits to build this data structure. And so this idea sort of goes through a lot of, in fact, more recent work in lower bounds in uh, data structure design and also communication. So, you know, you two parties want to communicate with each other and they want to decide whether, you know, they have the same bit string. And you want to argue that, you know, you need at least these many bits of information for them to communicate to show that they have the same bit string. Uh, you use essentially either Fano's inequality or even simpler versions of it to make this argument that you need at least a certain number of bits. This is used in statistics in a very different way, but that's a different story. But in computer science, this is the one of the ways in which the inequality is used. Okay, getting back to the example that you used of uh, of names and genders, um, how ha, can you kind of? I don't know if this is putting if this is going to work exactly, but um, can you kind of walk us through how this might uh, help us understand that? Obviously, not having complete information about how how this does correspond to names, but um. right. So, so let's say that the let's say you have a channel. Okay, what's going into the channel, which is X, is the um, full information about the person. Let's say, including the gender, right? mm -hmm. and the channel, you know, absorbs a lot of this information and just spits out a name, the name of the person. That's why. And now the task is predict or reconstruct the person's gender from the name. Okay. So, um, so what, what, um, so now you have X, you have Y, you want to reconstruct X. And so you have some procedure, some algorithm, some unknown algorithm that you might want to design that will predict the gender from the name. Okay. And now this procedure will have a certain amount of error. Let's call this error P. Right, the probability of error, the probability of getting it wrong, basically, is p. Okay, and so what um, Fano's inequality says, roughly speaking. So I, I mean, I could read out the actual inequality, but on the air, it might not be easy to say. But roughly speaking, right. it says that this probability p times a few other terms that are relevant, that are, but are, that are not directly relevant to this discussion, is greater than equal to. Okay, the entropy of the random variable x, which is you can think of as drawn from the population of people. So I drew uniformly from the population of people in the US, right? Um, or of Caucasians in the US, because we're li limiting ourselves to that thing. Right. Um, so that's a random variable x. And so um, then, my, then my, my procedure to, uh, that, and, and, and going through this, I get the value y. So the amount of, so I compute the entropy of, or the entropy of the distribution on x conditioned that the gender was a female. So I look at okay, how much, yeah, yeah. And, and basically that probability of error is greater than or equal to, you know, uh, uh, with some extra constants attached, this, this uh, entropy. So in other words, if I, so what it's saying is very intuitive, right? If I say, look, I tell you the person is, is female and we're sort of limiting ourselves to sort of this sort of binary sort of 
uh, choice of gender. But, but let's just say we, we say this person is female. You know, um, sorry, this person's name is so and so, right? Um, what is the range of gender? What does the gender distribution looks like conditioned on having a name? So let's say the name, uh, let's say is uh, let me think of a name that would be let's say Dylan, D Y L A N. Right? Mm -hmm. So Dylan yeah. is the name. So there's going to be some, you know, probability of the person being male and some probability being female. And in the case of a name like Dylan, those probabilities might not be too far apart, right? So you can actually compute this entropy now. You can say, okay, what is the entropy of X given Y? You just write the formula for entropy for this distribution, all right? It's uh, PI, you know, P1 log P1 plus P2 log P2 in this case, where P1 plus P2 is equal to 1. And so the probability of error, no matter what, how clever your procedure is, is going to be lower bounded by this quantity with some other constants attached to make it all make sense. Okay. Does that does that, does that help? Uh, yeah, no, that yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. I, I made this I made this completely up on the fly, so I'm not even sure it's correct. But I think it's correct. It's, <laughs> well, it sounds roughly correct. I mean, so so yeah. words, the point is sort of the 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 noisier your channel, right? That the, the probability is going to go up, and the, the entropy is going to be higher, right? So right. Yeah. Well, that, that, you're right. That's intuitively obvious, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And, and the surprising thing about this is that you don't have to worry about the actual reconstruction procedure, that the amount of information is a is a limiting factor. on No matter what you do, right. you're going to have to deal with that basic information thing. And, and you can see why this now connects to my work on algorithmic so fairness and bias now, right? Because, for example, one of the things that is often suggested, right, is to say, oh, you know, like in California, they just did a week ago saying, we'll just, we, you are not allowed to use someone's gender to give them um, driver's insurance. Okay. Now, there are many reasons why there are problems with the policy as implemented versus the intent. I understand the intent, but the policy has issues. But one issue is this. Well, just removing gender may not be sufficient because there may be signal in other variables that might allow me to allow my system to predict gender. I don't know what it's doing, but it could internally be predicting gender. And then it would be doing the thing you're trying to prohibit by saying, just remove the gender variable. So right. while that in, the intention of that rule is, is good, it's not clear that it will, as implemented, it will succeed in achieving the goals it set out. But you can't reason about this unless you can reason about information versus computation. And that's why Fano's inequality turns out to be so important. I sort of used it in spirit in some of my work, and some people in follow-up work have used it explicitly in their work to sort of show limits on, you know, to, to what extent you can actually sort of reverse engineer, you know, um, protected variables of this kind, like gender from other things. Oh, yeah, that would be really important to understand where you might have bias coming in. Right. Especially when you don't know what the system is doing. And that's what that's what's so beautiful for us in equality. It does not care. Right. Oh, that's so cool. Thanks. Thanks for telling us about that. So is this something that you'd kind of learn in one of your first uh I maybe not first computer science courses, but very early on in, in your education, or did you pick this up along the way? Oh no, you don't I mean it depends. If you're you it is very unlikely that you will hear about Fauna's inequality in any kind of computer science, uh, theoretical computer science class, even in grad school. Okay. You usually pick it up from papers. Or if you take a course in information theory, it's a core concept there. So if you take any course in information theory, it'll come up very quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. But in computer science, it comes up usually when you're reading a paper and they use some magic lower bound trick, like where do they get that from? And that's what happened to me. It's like, where do they get this from? And then you go down a rabbit hole and you come back up three years later with this enlightened <laughs> understanding. of. I, I mean, the, this, the Fados inequality generalizes in many ways. I mean, there's a beautiful 
you know, sort of, there's a more geometric interpretation of what funnels inequality really is when you go to more advanced versions of it. So there's there's lots of very beautiful, that's the thing about a lot of these nice inequalities. They, they're stated very simply, but they have these connections to things that are very broad and very deep and can be expressed in different languages, not just in information theory, also in geometry, and that makes them really cool. So there's a nice geometric analog to funnels inequality as well that people use in differential privacy in other places. Okay. So, uh, so, so what does one pair with Fano's inequality? Ah, see the, so the, so when, when I start, first started listening to my favorite theorem, I started thinking, okay, you know, if one day they ever invite me on, I'm going to talk about <laughs> Fano's inequality and I'm going to think about what to pair with it. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> Good. And so, see, see, you, you have, you have all these fans now. That's the thing. That's a cool thing about this cool. <laughs> So, uh, my choice for the pairing is uh, goat cheese with an jalapeno jam spread on top of it, on a cracker. Okay. Okay. And the reason I chose this pairing, because there are two things that you wouldn't normally think go together well, but they go together amazingly well on a cracker. Oh, and I think do. that, that yeah. sort of embodies for me what Fano's inequality is saying. The two things that you don't expect to go together go together really well. <laughs> no, no, the, ta okay. the, no the, the, the tanginess of the cheese and the salty of the olives, of course that's good. No olives, the jalapeno, an jalapeno spread, like a spicy. Oh, a jalapeno. Like oh, no, even better. Okay, all right. So this, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this sounds very southern. So in the south, what we do, I mean, I, I grew up in North ah. Carolina. You take cream cheese and pepper jelly, hot pepper jelly, and you put that on a Perfect, cracker. perfect. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> that, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah okay. All right, good. That's yeah. delicious, yeah. So uh, do you make your own uh, jalapenos for this, or oh, God, do you have yeah. a favorite brand yeah. of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm a, a like a, a, I'm I'm a glutton, not a gourmet. So I'll eat it whenever anyone gives it to me. But I don't know how to make these things. <laughs> okay. We recently we had a CSA last fall um, and had a surplus of uh, hot peppers. And I am unfortunately not very uh, spice tolerant or spiciness. I I love spices, but um, you know can't handle the heat very well um but my spouse loves it so i've been making these like slightly sweet pickled jalapenos mm. with oh. I, I made those and since then um he's been asking me you know i've just been going out and getting more and making those so uh this i think you have um I will be serving this to him around the time we air this episode, okay, I assume. <laughs> so uh, since you can get everything horrifying on YouTube, one horrifying <laughs> thing you can watch on YouTube is the world uh, chili eating competitions. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say it involves lots of milk and barf bags. Yes, I, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I do like my chilies. Yeah, I, I like I, I like the habaneros and the, and, and the sort of things like that. I like eating them. So. Yeah, I just, um, I watched the first part of a video where everyone in an orchestra eats this really hot pepper and then they're supposed to play something, but I just couldn't make myself watch the rest. <laughs> it just seemed, including the brass and winds and stuff. I was just thinking, oh, that's like, terrible. oh this yeah. is so terrible. <laughs> yeah, I felt too like bad drunk for history. them. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It's like the drunk history show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've often joked about having, uh, you know, drunk favorite theorem. Like we should. That would be awesome. That would be so cool. <laughs> yeah. We should do that. Yeah. Well, sometimes when I transcribe the episodes, I play the audio uh, slower because then I can kind of keep up with transcribing it. Um, and it really sounds like people are stoned. When yeah. they're, they're, so we, we joked about having higher mathematics. Higher mathematics. Um, that's right. Yeah. And talk, you know, that's very good. I love, I talking love that. about that's like excellent. 
so the mean values here. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I would it, subscribe it to that great. show. <laughs> yeah. So note to all federal authorities, we are not doing no, this. No, we're not doing this. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for joining us. So if people want to find you online, they can find you on Twitter, which is, I think, how we first uh, got introduced yep. to each other. Um, where What is your handle on that? Uh, it's a geom blog. So geometry blog. That's my first blog. So G-E-O-M-B-L-O-G. Mm-hmm. So geom blog. I, that's, I, I maintain a blog as well. And so that's among the places. I'm a social media butterfly, so you can find me anywhere. So Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, but my, on my my web page is, is also a good place. My at uh, the university, yeah. Yeah, we'll include that, including the link to this uh, this post about Fano's inequality, so people can see. Uh, you know, I, it really helped me to read that before talking with you about it to to get some of the um, you know the actual inequalities and the terms that appear in there uh, straight in my head. So yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Rush. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at myfavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.